If you have a, your Bible with you, if you'll turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. You know, Christmas songs, by definition, ought to be upbeat, joyful, and happy, because that's the nature of the gospel, and that's the way we tell the Christmas story. So we do not associate Christmas with, for example, the theme music to Jaws. It just doesn't go together. But maybe we should, because those elements are right here in the biblical story. And I've chosen to take up this particular passage today, because I believe we have a child crisis this Christmas. And as of December 1st, just in Kansas City, Missouri, they had 157 homicides, which is on average, if they keep, if they keep up, they, they are right on track to beat last year's record by one. 32% of the victims are under 24. 50% of the known suspects are under 24. Nine victims and seven known suspects are under 18. December 6th, we learned of a child's death from malnutrition and neglect. In Kansas, a 13-year-old was killed in a murder-suicide. Four 17-year-olds were charged with a Shawnee homicide. Two teens were killed in a Sunday afternoon shooting in Midtown. And at the same moment, our society, our schools, our social media, our regular media are all conspiring together to increase the gender dysphoria among our kids. And we who are adults who agree with that confusion, all we do is add to the psychological inner sense of unease and dissatisfaction and then that confusion leads to distress and to impairment because, because of the incongruence between what they desire and how they were born. Now, just hear me out on this. We got a child crisis this Christmas because sometimes we get frustrated with God because at the same moment that he gives us freedom, he also requires responsibility. And the moment that you're empowered to choose then the consequence is on you. So whenever there is a failure, all you have to do is listen carefully to the person's language. Just listen to what they're saying. Things like, oh, well, you know, the economy. Well, the pandemic. Uh, well, the election. Well, my teachers. Well, the competition. And here's our first point for study. If you struggle with taking personal responsibility for the life God has given you, then you will struggle with accepting its stress. So listen to the language, because what they say is, well, that gender was assigned me at birth, and I don't want it. And, and confusion and dysphoria come in, because no one assigned you your sex at birth, not the doctor, not your mother, not the birth certificate, and yet we talk about it, as if somebody else is present in the room deciding arbitrarily and they force it on us without us asking. Because we do not want to take responsibility for the life that God gave us. Now look on your handout at Psalm 139 verse 14. Because this is just bottom line. I will pr praise thee, David said, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that's right, because marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. So God created you both fearfully and wonderfully. You have beauty, you have creativity, you have imagination. 
but you also have a sin nature, and if you allow it, the devil will use that sin nature to drag you into darkness because you cannot claim the freedom to choose and then put the responsibility for your choices back on God. And that is why gender dysphoria is classified as a mental disorder. And now I will admit that being proud, uh, let's say, of your good looks should also be listed as a psychological disorder. Now I can say that because I'm ugly. But, but, you know, if you won the gene lottery by chance, well, surely you ought to find something else to brag about. But how are you going to use what God has actually given you? And this tendency to dysphoria is exactly why the Bible uses the word confusion with certain sexual practices, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. Confusion means with fusion. It is a mixing, it is a combining which brings things into disorder. It destroys a natural order. It results in just dismay, bewilderment. This is our second point for study. Destruction of God's order always leads to mental disorder because God holds you responsible for your use of what he entrusts to you And God always treats you and entrusts you with truth. He doesn't entrust you with anything but truth. So he lets you know in in your Bible that your purpose in life is confounded if you put confusion into his divine order. Psalm 70 verse 2, Isaiah 45, 16. And one of the results of this sea change in the thinking of our society and this paradigm shift that has gone on is the way things are are viewed and described where we make up truth contrary to our waking reality. And then we end up doing exactly what Jeremiah describes, Jeremiah 7, 19. Look at it on your handout. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? You think I'm mad because you want to change your gender. You think you're getting even with me. No, in reality, you only provoke yourself with the confusion of your own face. And that happens because one of the greatest loopholes that prevents you from living up to how God designed you is the voice in your own head which says, it is wrong for me to accept my responsibility for what God's given me. Confusion of face means it's as plain as the nose on your face And yet, you get it in your mind to deny it. It's like what James told us last Sunday. We lust to envy. We provoke our envy. We provoke our lusts and desires to take us away from the structure that God has given us to live with. And your therapist may agree with your choice to change gender, but your doctor never will. Because he or she has to operate according to waking reality, according to truth, in order to treat you. So we have a child crisis this Christmas on multiple levels. Let me take you to our text in Matthew 2 because we need to see what hope there is in this holiday. What will God do? What should this church do? What should you do? Verse 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem 
Now that's a good omen because almost every move from east to west in the Bible is, is a good move. And the Magi come to Jerusalem from the east and they're asking a question, really making a statement as they ask this question. The king of the Jews was just born, where is he? Now this is the first question in your New Testament. Somebody is looking for something. Today is it you? God seeks humanity, Genesis 3, 9, Luke 19, verse 10. Some humans seek God, John 12, verses 20 and 21. And you know, the ancients had this incredible ability to obtain knowledge. I mean, the pyramids are proof of that. We still don't know how they did that. Common people in Bible times had much more information about what was going on at that time than the scholars have today about what was going on at that time. Now, admittedly, that's mainly because the Magi believed and read the scriptures, God's scriptures, as holy revelations from God. So the common shepherd did not miss the Messiah's coming. It was the educated scribes. It was the religious leaders that missed it. Oh, and maybe the, the innkeeper. But as far as the wise men were concerned, Daniel 9 was written while Daniel was their leader. And it contains the exact time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, dating it from the decree of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah 2, verse 1. So a smart magi, knowing mathematics, if he believes God's words, he can exactly figure out the birth of Christ to within his generation. And since they knew that that ruler would be marked by a star, Numbers 24, verse 17, then all they had to do was keep watching. So they come to Jerusalem in verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Verse 4, And when Herod had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So the Magi are looking for a king who is born and not bought. And so they query the current puppet appointed by Rome. And Herod does, in fact, demand the scholars and the religious leaders consult their scriptures in order to find out where this new king is. Okay, now wait. For Herod reads Satan in this passage. So for Herod, just read Satan. Herod is so sure that God's words can accurately foretell the future. The devil is so sure that God's word is true. He is willing to murder our children over it. And he's doing it. Do you have that much fear and respect for the Bible God gave you? Oh, there's a child crisis this Christmas, and there are reasons for it, and we better solve it. So the first thing Jesus does in life is kind of provoke a revolution. And not only is Herod in trouble in verse 3, but since the Magi are also kingmakers and all Jerusalem is troubled, I mean, after all, everybody else can see that star as well. And now they have the three wise men, NASA, Hubble, and Webb. I know you always wondered what their names were. NASA, Hubble, and Webb come out telling them what that star means. Verse 5, and the scribe said to Herod in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And the answer to Herod's question is Micah 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, who, watch, watch, what's this last clause? Who going, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now that's obviously talking about Jesus Christ. But you know what? In order to remove the proof of the Trinity, to remove the proof that Jesus is actually everlasting God, that verse ends up being corrupted in so many of our popular recent translations. I'm just saying, Christian Standard Bible, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. I mean, he's not everlasting, but I mean, he goes back a long way. He's in time, not outside of time, and it was a long time ago. ESV, who's coming from uh, forth, is from of old, from ancient days. NIV, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And that is exactly why those people do not come up with the correct answers for you. Because when they mess with God's word, God messes with their marbles. I'm just saying. Verse 7, then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Okay, now watch, watch what's happening here, because uh, one of Caesar's, Caesar's titles was Lord, and since Julius Caesar was designated by the Roman Senate as divine, even though he's dead. So after he died, the Roman Senate said, oh, that's okay. He died, he's still a god. So we're, we're saying he's a god. Okay, Augustus, who was the emperor at this moment, who was Julius Caesar's heir, now has the title Son of God. Herod worships that Son of God publicly just fine. Even as much as it contradicts waking reality. But Herod speaks to the wise men privately because there's no way he's going to speak openly in front of his scribes and priests about worshiping the person prophesied in their scriptures as being the very birth of God. So he says, look, a star appeared to you. What time? Now, angels are called stars in Revelation 12, verses 4 and 9. So the star which guided the wise men from the east, it shows up again. It's right over the house there in Bethlehem. So the night that the wise men visit is not the same night as the shepherds heard about Jesus' birth from the angels. But this creates a child crisis at Christmas. And for Herod, read Satan, because here's our third point for study. Because Jesus may have escaped him. But that only means the devil is all the more after your kids and my kids today. Because every baby born with free will is an eventual threat, a potential threat. I mean, especially if they're in our harvest kids, especially if they're in one of our one of kids, they are a potential threat to the devil's kingdom. And that is why there's a child crisis at this Christmas. Satan is just as intent on killing our kids or keeping them enslaved to sin and bound to him as Herod was about the babies in Bethlehem. But now watch because something that they didn't have that we got, we've got divine help. You have divine help if you will join us in rescuing kids from this crisis. 
you know, I know that everything new is supposed to start first of the year, and so January 1st, you're supposed to lay out this plan and have this stuff. You know, in the, in, the, in the Bible, the new year starts about September, and that's Jewish Rosh Hashanah. The head of the year is, is like in September, and, and so usually about September is when God starts speaking to me and stirring stuff up, and it's like, okay, what, you know, where do we go next? What, what, are you, what are you saying? Where do we go? Uh, this last fall, I finally got so fed up I presented a one-sheet solution to our pastors and to our board. I mean, I just got fed up. Our kids and their teachers have put up with an almost impossible learning environment since COVID. Our youth have not even been able to meet on Sunday since COVID. Well, COVID is either gone or under control. So starting January 1st, all adult classes are going to move off Sunday morning service times so we can get our kids back in their educational wing, the youth back on Sunday, the college in a place where they can uh, keep growing. And then hopefully by after the first year, you keep praying, but I'm trusting the Lord that I'll be able to present you with a 4,000 square foot facility solution so we can get the adult classes back with us on Sunday and some we can reasonably do and build in 2023. Verse 12, and the wise men being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be there until I bring thee word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So the Magi find Jesus, but they do not inform Herod based on the word they get from God, and they believe. Well, that saves them and allows them to escape by another route. Joseph gets gold from them, and based on the word that he gets from God and believes, it saves Mary, Jesus, and allows them to escape to Egypt land. Verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night. I mean, he didn't, wait, he didn't waste any time on this. And he departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. So Herod performs a lot of atrocities, just like any good Roman did. And they were never recorded, and they were never leaked to the press, they were never written down. But Matthew records this dark episode because this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea 11, verse 1. So what you learn in verse 15 is that the Bible is a multivalent revelation. I mean, it's God's word, obviously not a human book because there are all these simultaneous applications. So Hosea refers to a past historical event that's called the Exodus, but doctrinally he's referring to a future event, which is what happened here with Jesus. So what happens to Israel is a Bible type, a picture of what will occur with Jesus, Israel comes up out of Egypt, and Israel's relationship to Egypt, controlled by Pharaoh, is a picture of humanity's bondage to the world and this world system controlled by the devil. But that's not even all. Israel was called out of Egypt. Jesus was called out of Egypt. You were called out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, Colossians 1.13. This church is a called out assembly. We are called to assemble and because we are Christ's body and we are Christ's bride soon and very soon. We will be called out of here and we will be caught up to be with him, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 
I mean, it's almost too good to believe. But there is coming a great exodus of the children of God off of this planet. Therefore, the past historical application to Israel, the multivalent simultaneous application to Jesus, the present spiritual application when you get saved, the future doctrinal application for the church, it is all simultaneously true, and it's all apparent by simply comparing Scripture with Scripture. But because Matthew and Hosea shed light on Herod, it shows us the crisis that we are in at this Christmas. I mean, the irony is so striking. Much of the first Christmas story is celebratory. So it's, you got the song of Mary at the conception and the, the chorus of angels at his birth and the joy of the shepherds and the worship of the wise men. And that joy and that celebration is reflected in all our own Christmas traditions of joy and singing and feasting and gift giving. And yet tucked away in this little corner of Matthew's gospel is a reality check. Everyone in the tale has happened this happy-go-lucky Christmas parade, and in walks the adversary, pours gasoline all over it, and gets ready to light a match. And Matthew is the only gospel writer who records this. I mean, if he had not recorded this, we would not know anything about it. Watch, verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked to the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, all the suburbs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And I know you can hear those mothers screaming, trying to hide and protect their baby because we see them on our news every month as they cry and they're trying to understand the anguish of the senseless death of a child. But in this instance, in Matthew, many a mother or father lay beside their baby, slain because the soldiers couldn't execute the child without killing the parents. And, and that is a shame as well. When a parent gets so caught up in their own grief that the rest of their life is spent wishing for vengeance or hoping for justice or dwelling on despair or looking for answers that never come. And that is why some even senselessly take their own life in violence. As we saw this last week, do not tell me we do not have a child crisis this Christmas. So how do we handle our child crisis Herod inquires diligently, verses 7 and 16, and he pegs it at two years. You know, he's probably allowed for a few months. His heinous act is anticipated by Jeremiah the prophet. Rachel died giving birth right there at Bethlehem, Genesis 35, verses 16 to 19. And verse 18 here in Matthew 2 tells us, in Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Matthew gives a free quotation by the Holy Spirit of Jeremiah 31, 15. So you, if you want to solve our child crisis this Christmas, let me give you four things. First off, notice if you will, it's number one. You must understand that God sees your situation. I mean, Matthew even makes it sound like the dearly departed know something about what's happening on planet Earth. And even if not, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18.10 that 
Little children have a representative appearance in heaven right in front of his father's face. So whatever you think about what God allows or whatever you think about what God should not allow or whatever you think about what God allowed with you, God does see, God does know, and here's our fourth point for study. God knows the cost of being so absolutely sovereign that he can allow you to have an unfettered free will and yet him still be God. He knows. So much so that of all the Christmas prophecies, Jeremiah does not record an event, really. Jeremiah records an emotion. Jeremiah records the emotional responses to an event, and God knows that every innocent child, um, while he is not saved, he is yet safe. And he or she is safe because until they reach the age, not just that they know right from wrong, but until they reach the age that they know how their wrong offends and interferes with their relationship with God, until then, they are safe by the benefits of Christ's blood being applied to them. Romans 7, verses 8 and 9. Romans 2, 15. So if they cannot reject him, God accepts them. Now, that is gospel good news for, for somebody at Christmas. That is a good news hope. If you've miscarried or you've had a child who's died, as a matter of fact, I mean, Jesus says, hey, the whole kingdom is practically made up of those who die as children from any land at any time under any religion. Matthew 19, 14, Luke 18, 16. So it was not all sweetness and light when Jesus was born, just like it's not today. And the Bible records the joy of the parents giving life, but God sees and God knows the anguish of a mother or father dealing with the grief of a senseless killing. I mean, can you imagine by, by two years of age, you're thinking, okay, you know, infant death syndrome, we're beyond that. And uh, uh, infant mortality, we're kind of beyond that. You know what? I can love them now. I can actually start loving this little person. They're going to be with us. And then one night, there's not a knock at the door. There's just a clamor and torches and armed soldiers. And they act for reasons that you never understand until Matthew writes this in his gospel. Besides grief, there's all kinds of pain and heartbreak and loss and loneliness that people are experiencing at Christmas time. And I wonder if that's why Christmas is the most depressing time of year for a lot of people. So your first goal should not be to make God understand anything. Your first goal should be for you to understand God. Rachel wept and would not be comforted because that was the emotions of God. And God is the most humble being in the universe precisely because he allows you to hurt him. He allows you to grieve him. And then second, on the other hand, not only does God see, and this is number two, understand that God allows your situation. Verse 17, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. So the whole fact that this massacre of children at Bethlehem was prophesied demonstrates how God in his foreknowledge knew that it was coming. You say, Alan, well, why didn't he prevent it there in Bethlehem? Well, because he hasn't prevented it in your life either. That's why. 
We still have a child crisis this Christmas, and he is giving you his spirit and his scriptures so that you can address it. I mean, why prevent it when he gives us, acting together, exactly what is needed to resolve it? And you know what? I understand that God created this universe with other free will beings uh, beyond ourselves. So there are angels and there are demons. And I know it can seem entirely unfair uh, for you that you have to go up against demons, but you are a conqueror through the assistance of an ungrieved Holy Ghost and the words of God. Why? Well, this is our fifth point for study, because God all will always give you whatever you need to love, serve, and glorify Him. That's just bottom line. As we saw James say last Sunday, submit to God and the devil himself will flee from you. You know, the words coming out of Alexa's mouth are really meaningless. And the words coming out of Siri's mouth are just as meaningless as those of your parents or your peers or your professors. But if you have the words of God to be used by the Spirit of God, then the grief is always there, but so is the Christ to Christmas. So is the hope of everlasting life. So is the life, the eternal life, and the sharing of that life to others. You say, well, God shouldn't allow a world where even one child suffers or dies unjustly. Now, I think that if I were God, I'd be saying, well, then create your own men. When you create your own world, you, you set it up like you want. And I know we want to say, but, you know, look, if God were God, he should have stopped the devil before we got here. Oh, oh, okay. Now, look, they are saved and safe because of Jesus. Are you? So you're going to take up an offense against God on Rachel's behalf, which she does not have, though weeping. And you're going to have a problem with God that the children who were killed in Bethlehem, in Jericho, in the Holocaust, in Ukraine, in, in your own household, do not have this moment looking down on you. How many of you in here have children? You have children or grandchildren? Okay. You made the same choice God made. Stop dogging on him. You chose to create little human beings who are free to break your heart. And yet you want to hold it against God for being like you? So not only does God see, not only does God allow, but this is number three, understand that God is present in your situation. Why does God allow evil and suffering? so that he can experience the same joy you do with your children, even if it breaks his heart. Why does God give us such a crisis at Christmas, especially the aspects that affect our children? So you can have the opportunity, by getting saved and being discipled, to first experience the answer, and then live the answer, and then bring the answer to others who are still lost. So in the final analysis, this is number four, understand that it is the righteousness of God which will redeem your situation. The first infallible way he does this is through resurrection. So what happened to those children who were massacred by Herod? Well, their spirits went to paradise and Herod's went to hell. I mean, there's a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, Acts 24, 15. 
And while they are now living in Christ's kingdom, Herod is suffering in hell. That sounds right to me. And if you trust Jesus for eternal life today, you will have a family reunion in heaven. Look, this is our thesis. Finally ready for our thesis for today's study. (coughs) Because God redresses the injustice and the pain of the righteous through resurrection, reunion, and reward. And that is just bottom line. So the second way God redeems our situation is through his judgment on the wicked. Uh, Some of that comes even in this life, but not the main part of it. And without understanding that, then you may believe that the Herods of this world literally get away with murder. No, they answer to God, and their punishment will exactly fit their crimes. Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. God takes your pain so serious, he bore it himself on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And if you will trust in Christ's finished work, God saves you by his grace. If you believe on Jesus, he gives you everlasting life. And then you can be just like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 verse 9 and be found in Christ, (coughs) not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. God's ultimate answer to your pain comes through you believing on the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. Because faith in him brings you into the family of God. It puts the Holy Spirit in your heart. It allows you to start defining every crisis of your life through the Bible and find the way of escape he gives with his word. Every head bowed, every eye closed. My my time is up. Thank you for yours. Jesus says it is evil if you do not accept responsibility for what God has given you. And he gives you physical life so that you can accept everlasting life from him without embarrassment, without excuse. Accept everything God wants to give you in this life, his spirit and the certainty of his words of truth. And then become his instrument to bring that good news to others. Jesus wants you to give him his life, not so that you will be less, but so that you can reign with him as king and priest in his kingdom. I mean, king is cool, obviously. King is cool. But priest means you're ministering to others. You are the gateway to bring others to God and, and God to them. You're the teacher of the word. You are a disciple maker. That's priest. And you will never escape this crisis without the God who created you. This is your moment. Let Jesus cleanse your sins with the blood that he shed on the cross. And to get that, all you have to do is pray. Just pray and say, Jesus, I give you my life. God, I trust Jesus today. Save me. God, save me for Jesus' sake. I, I, all I want to do is what you told me to do. I'm just trusting him. Sink or swim, live or die. God, I, I'm doing all your word says. And I want you now to do through me all that you created me to do all the good that you created me for, do through your word.
Do it for my generation. Do it for the children we are raising right now. So here, Jesus, I give you my life. Go ahead and stand, if you would, as we get ready to ask the praise team to send us out singing. If you prayed and you trusted Jesus for eternal life today, come up and meet us here at the front. Do that right now. Do it while we're singing. Do it as soon as we get done.